The problem is that markets, as Soros has mentioned many times, have these embedded feedback loops. There's reflexivity embedded in everything. So it might not be true that index funds pushed Tesla's stock up. But if enough investors believe, and let's face it, Tesla has a lot of retail investors that will grasp onto any reason to buy the stock, then it becomes true. So it's unambiguously true that when Tesla made it into the S&P 500, that was one of the biggest rebalancing trading periods in, in the S&P 500's history, because they never had an index inclusion of a company that big in market cap. But broadly speaking, this secret, the dirty secret, not even dirty really, but it, it was fine. It worked fine. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today I'm joined by Robin Wigglesworth, who is the global finance correspondent at the Financial Times and the author of a great new book called Trillions, which we will be diving into today. But first off, Robin, thanks so much for joining me. I've very much been looking forward to our conversation. How are you doing? How are things where you are today? Uh, things are good. Uh, you know, my daughter just got COVID. We're in Norway. We've luckily been sort of... Uh fairly shielded from everything going on. But uh, yeah, it, it, it touches everybody. But apart from that, everything's fine. <laughs> now, you uh, you mentioned Norway. And of course, we're both from the Nordic countries. I'm Danish and, and you are Norwegian. But I have to admit that I didn't notice that your last name is not very Norwegian sounding. And I've also heard you pronounce financial terms in perfect Arabic, which I'm sure we don't, you know, we're not taught in, in our school system. So tell me a little bit of how that all ties together. No, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, growing up in Norway, it was weird having a name like Wigglesworth when everybody else was called Hansen, Svensson and Johnson and so on. Uh, my father is English. He came from the Lake District. Met my mother in Scotland, they were both studying architecture. And the plan was to do five years in Norway and then five years in the UK, and they just ended up staying here. So I grew up fairly fe feeling fairly international. I went to an international school and I studied abroad. But it was only now that I had kids, I, I wanted them to grow up in Norway. So I happen to be based for the FT now in Oslo, but I cover basically everything other than the Nordics from here. But you picked up a little bit of Middle Eastern uh, skills as well. So uh, how, how did that uh, fit into your uh, career, so to speak? Well, it was just the fact that, you know, sadly, quite a lot of journalists don't actually grow up dreaming of being financial correspondents uh, and covering stocks going up and stocks going down. Uh, I wanted to be a war correspondent or a foreign correspondent. And I studied international relations and history and political Islam. And when I was doing my master's at the LSE, I saw a job opening for a financial journalist in Dubai. Now, obviously, as you'll probably know, Dubai is the least Middle Eastern-y part of the Middle East. But it sounded a lot more tempting than going into the Norwegian army, because we still have conscription. 
and be a paratrooper. So I packed my bags and moved down to the Gulf. And my first job was covering primarily Islamic finance. And my very first interview the day after I landed was with a local sheikh about Islamic reinsurance, Rita Kafal. And <laughs> I was wildly unqualified uh, to talk to him. But the great thing about being a journalist is that you get to talk to lots of really smart, interesting people, and sometimes some not very smart, not very interesting people, and just learn all the time, right? So for me, discovering finance and economics, it was like seeing the hidden wiring behind the entire world, and it just fascinated me. So I later became a Middle East correspondent, correspondent for the Financial Times. I did get to play a war correspondent briefly during the Arab Spring, but the first cut was the deepest, and I still love kind of unpacking the puzzles of modern finance more than anything else. Yeah, no, very interesting stuff. I want to kind of stay a little bit longer with your background, your career, and I've got a few reasons for that. Firstly, I would say I find journalism extremely interesting, and I have come to appreciate over the years the power of narrative and storytelling, even in the world of quant investing, I can assure you. And I also remember, frankly, that um, when I started out in the hedge fund business, that one should stay away from journalists, but because they prefer to talk about the bad and the negatives rather than all the positives. But um, finally, we have witnessed this massive transformation uh, in the world of media. And you've seen the rise of kind of ordinary people suddenly showing up as amazing content creators, including writers and bloggers with no formal training in journalism. So this is a long-winded way to get to the question. What I'm really curious to know is how you think journalism and the financial media has changed in the last 10 to 15 years and also how that's impacted you personally in the things that you've done, but also in the things you want to do going forward. No, I think you raise some great points uh, and it has changed massively. And I think the big inflection point was the financial crisis because before that, there were a lot of people that ended up in financial journalism, but very few people that dreamed about that when they were 10 or 12, right? It's not astronaut or working for the Financial Times. But I think the financial crisis really hammered home to an entire generation how much you might not care or know much about finance, but finance cares and matters a lot to you and affects us in profound ways. So I'd say that the quality of people I see that apply for jobs at the Financial Times is astonishingly higher than it was before. As in, I don't think I could have gotten a job at the FT today. And that's a good thing. There is a people that, you know, still need to be taught and have a lot to learn, but they have a fundamental curiosity. And I think that is the most essential skill for a journalist. The dirty secret is that a lot of journalists aren't actually very good at writing. Some people are naturally great writers, but are still terrible journalists. You have to be curious and want to figure things out. The, the puzzles I mentioned. You want to, you might must think people and situations are fascinating. You want to unpick them or report them or explain them. And I think that has definitely gotten better in that there are still areas I think are badly covered. And there are structural issues with journalism in that I think the whole, oh, we, we're doom mongers, we only care about bad news is just silly. Because frankly, we just frankly reflect what humans are like, and that humans love bad news. We love titillation and salacious gossip and bad news and people getting embarrassed. 
I think it's more that the structures of how we do journalism and what is considered how you write a newspaper article hasn't changed massively for the for generations, right? And I think that is getting blown up a little bit by the internet for good and bad. It does mean those sloppy standards that creep in all the time. And I think there's a value to rigor and a strong model to follow. You know, for quants, you, you follow the, the model and the system, you override it at your own peril. But I also think, it, you know, the industry needs a bit more creativity where like the fundamental mission is to inform and help explain what is going on in the world. And sometimes the rules of journalism can be a little bit of a straitjacket around that. And I think things are moving in the right direction. But, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of things happening over the past 10, 20 years. I'm mean, just think when I went to journalism school, you know, I had a class where they taught us this new cool tool called Google. That was considered breaking news. That was really like hot shit for journalism at the time. And now, you know, Twitter erupted whilst I was in the Arab, covering the Arab Spring. Yeah, TikTok now, like there are people doing stupid stuff on TikTok, but actually quite clever, sophisticated, you know, through the, the, the meme, uh, meme medium, but still pretty smart stuff on, on TikTok. That is not a medium I can master. So I'm quite excited about you know, the fact that, you know, no matter what your generation or your interest in, in finance, there's going to be a, a broader and probably better ecosystem of providers there for you in the coming decades. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I actually think you made a great point. I think curiosity is one of those completely underrated skills. And unfortunately, to a large extent, uh, the school systems of today are rarely areas where they encourage curiosity. Although, I mean, my kids have also attended international school and there it is a very much in the forefront of of what they're being taught. But I also see other school systems and it doesn't seem the same. I think it's a lot, frankly, I mean, this is a, a diversion, I guess, but uh, it's not just schools, it's parents, right? We need to encourage sure. that because I do think that I can teach somebody to write. I had to learn it myself. I was always an okay writer, but I had to learn it. It's like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the better you get. You can teach people about complex you know, financial concepts, but the curiosity to have the will to do so, mm. that is very hard to teach. Yeah. And that is the one thing that I sometimes see still as an issue when we get younger or, or older journalists, that the, the curiosity go, goes. You feel you've seen it all. You have nothing new to learn. And what I love about journalism is that you're almost paid to be a student, a permanent student. I get to learn new things from smart people all day long, every day. And that's just one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And speaking of curiosity, I am very curious to uh, focus on your new book, Trillions, which I highly recommend that people listening today should definitely get a copy of and, and read. Now, the book comes across as a very deeply uh, researched book, and also it's written in a very engaging way with some of the characters and important discoveries dating back for more than 100 years. Um, but yet you start off quite close to our hearts here at Top Traders Unplugged, namely with a bet between kind of the hedge fund performance and Warren Buffett. Tell me why this is such a great way to kind of frame the topic of, of the book, which of course instantly got me hooked on it. <laughs> no, it's... 
it's like you said earlier that you know humans think in narratives we like narratives even the most mathematically oriented around us might be in denial about it but we're just narrative driven animals and i wanted to not write another dummies guide to etfs or index funds i wanted to write something that would be gripping something that you know my wife could actually read and enjoy even if you know some parts pass her by and the way to do that is through the people and i just thought there were fascinating people behind this huge revolution. But I also felt that dumping my readers in 19th century Paris might be a little bit of an abrupt introduction to the wonderful world of passive investing. So I wanted to start with something a little bit more current. And this bet between Warren Buffett on one hand and protege partners, a fund of hedge funds on the other, about who would beat the S&P 500 in a 10-year period, hedge funds or a cheap index tracker from Vanguard, I just thought it was a great way of explaining the stakes, why this matters, uh, and introducing some of the characters we're going to meet later on as well, uh, because it was just an epic bet. And who who doesn't love a million dollar bet, right? Uh, especially when some of the the underdog, the cheap, boring index fund that you can buy from Vanguard for four basis points actually beat these five hedge uh, funds of hedge funds that Protege selected. Yeah, no, absolutely. What's great about the bet was also that they funded it by only paying in about a quarter of the money. Yes. That was, this was back then we had positive interest rates. Uh, I know. Was a good Imagine reminder. telling your kids about positive real interest rates. That's going to be a hoot. Yeah, I know. Now, by the way, a fun fact for you, I actually got your book uh, as the audiobook version of, of Trillions. And just to let you know, the 12 hours and three minutes matches per- perfectly the time it takes to drive from Denmark to Switzerland. Ah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you managed to do just that as well. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, the book is, of course, about the rise of passive investing and indexing. But before we dive into the path and evolution, perhaps you can share why this is so important and an important part of history of finance and what the impact has been to kind of set the framework for some of these characters we're going to talk about today? Well, the fundamental thing that I wanted to write about was a history of investing almost over the past century, because there's been so many books written about banks, for example, and bankers, and even a few really good ones about hedge fund managers, More Money Than Gold by Sebastian Malaby, for example. But I love the great books tell you a story through the prism of a person or an institution, but really tell a broader story. So the hero of my book is the index fund, this sort of humble thing that was spat upon when it was first started that kind of grew to take over the world. But I really want to explore how investing has evolved for the past century, right? And I think the index fund is the biggest shift in the fabric of the financial system over that period, arguably. So the mutual fund is almost coming up to 100 years old, if you count the, the first US mutual fund, which is more the structure that we recognize today. Uh, But in the past 50 years, it's the index fund, right? It's just mammoth. So the reason why I started covering it so much at the FT was because I felt it was undercovered as a phenomenon compared to some of these more titanic hedge fund managers. You know, financial journalism can sometimes be, at its worst, a little bit of celebrity journalism, but for people in finance. So you care about loudmouth activists more than you care about quants, or certainly index funds, because you don't have these sort of human fund managers running them. Um, but it was so big and it was clearly having such a mounting impact on markets and the wider investment industry that I, I spent and I still spend most of my time at the FT covering it. But this is now just the world that we know about. 
is $17 trillion. $17 trillion. That's twice as big as the global hedge fund, venture capital, and private equity industries combined. And that is just the public funds. There are lots of investors, sovereign wealth funds, pension plans, some private banks that do this in-house. They don't need to pay BlackRock to do this. So they have internal index strategies or have some separately managed account with a big index house. And you know, if you add up all those numbers, and I've done some reverse engineering on this, then we're probably talking about $26 trillion at least. That's my most conservative estimate of money that just tracks some sort of benchmark, whether it's the S&P 500, the Barclays AG, the EMBI, the Nikkei, or whatever. And that's just mammoth. And it's really only in the last two decades things have really exploded. So that's why I wanted to write about this book, both to show where we've come from and how far investing has evolved over the past century, but also maybe paint some contours of where we're heading in the next 20, 30 years as well, because I think indexing is unambiguously going to be a huge part of that future. Yeah. Fun, fun uh, little uh, anecdote from my side. And I don't know if you come across this in your research, actually, but as as you may know, uh, I, I come from the trend following the managed future side of, 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 of this uh, world. And back in the uh, 90s, uh, when I started out, uh, we had this wonderful monthly publication called the Managed Account Reports, which was kind of industry updates about trend followers, managed futures. And then around the year 2000, they started publishing uh, the same magazine, but it was called ETF. And I thought, this, is, this doesn't very sound very interesting and stop my subscription and all of that stuff. But boy, was I wrong. That became a much bigger area of finance than uh, the managed futures. But there well, we are. No, well, you're not wrong. I, mean, the, I think the interesting thing about the, the, first, the first index funds and for pension plans and the first index mutual funds and then the ETF, they all were essentially damp squibs when they first launched. So it goes to show that sometimes good ideas need some time before they get traction. Oh, absolutely. Now, early on in your book, you show this wonderful list of people who feature in your book, and you call it the cast of characters. And many of them are really part of the who's who in the financial history. But actually, I was also surprised how many of them I had not heard of before. So in my previous episode in this series on the podcast, I had a conversation with Professor Steve Forrester, who just uh, recently published a book with Andrew Lowe, uh, also professor, um, called In Pursuit of the Perfect Portfolio. And in that conversation with Steve, we focus on three of the academics who also uh, feature in your book, um, who obviously have had an enormous impact on how we invest today. And that was Harry Markovich, Eugene Farmer, and Bill Sharp. So what I'd like to hear and what I'd like to hear from you is kind of a summary of the period that they cover, let's call it 1950s to 1980, but who else, and we're going to leave Jack Bogle aside for just now, but who else would you highlight in terms of laying the foundation for both quant investing and, of course, indexing? And then we can move on to Jack Bogle um, after that. I just want to hear who else you thought were, were really interesting characters over that period of time. Well, I'd say the history of indexing and quant investing, arguably as well, actually starts with one guy called John McCrown. Mac, as he was known. Uh, so he was deeply steeped in the, in the academic backdrop that you're talking about. He was also, this is in the 60s, he was also uniquely, he studied mechanical engineering, first person in his family to do so, to go to high, you know, get a degree. And he fell in love whilst at university with a computer and learned to program. And he then later on did an MBA and started working at Smith Barney, 
But this was at a time when just even having engineering background was unusual on Wall Street. And the idea that you wanted somebody who could program, that was just laughable. Banks literally didn't buy computers then. Mm. Or had or only very few of them did and didn't really know what to do with them. But Mac, essentially, he ended up at Wells Fargo, where an uh, unusually foresightful uh, CEO and chairman called Ransom Cook essentially gave him an unlimited budget to set up an internal think tank. It's kind of skunk works called Management Sciences that was basically dedicated to finding out how they could use computers to improve finance. Is kind of a fintech think tank before those terms even invent, uh, existed. And Mac, you know, it's amazing what you can do with an unlimited budget. He hired this all-star cast of economists and financial experts to consult for management sciences. So you know, just, to, just to mention the Nobel Prize winners, there was Gene Farmer, Bill Sharp, Harry Markowitz, Merton Miller, uh, and ooh, quite a few others. I'm, I'm sure. forgetting Jack Trainer and the whole works. And they did lots of things. They invented the, the FICO scores, among other things. Uh, MasterCard grew out of management sciences as well. But the greatest was the index fund. And not only did they invent the index fund, the first iteration of it was born in, in 1971, so it's 50th anniversary of this year. But that became, that was later spun out to become what was, what was called then Wells Fargo Investment Advisors, WFIA. And if you look at a lot of the big giants of quantitative trading and portfolio management, a lot of them have worked there or have been associated somehow with WFIA. So Ron Kahn, Richard Grinold, um, Bar Rosenberg consulted for them. A lot of the stuff that we now take for granted, it wasn't just WFIA. Some of this happened organically in other parts of the world and in the country, of course. But it's kind of the original quant factory. And it's astonishing to see how many people around the world have some sort of background in WFIA, which later became WIFNIA when they merged with NICO, and then later Barclays Global Investors, and today is the crown jewel of BlackRock, the world's biggest investment company. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're going to come back to uh, to some of that, uh, of course. Let's dive into the story of, of Jack Bogle and, and Vanguard. I think a lot of investors today are familiar with these names, and I was as well before reading your book. But I have to say, after reading the book... I'm not sure I really did know the real story about Bogle and Vanguard at all. Um, so take us back to where it all started and kind of guide us through this fascinating story. Well, he's just a, a riveting character. And actually, he became even more interesting to me, at least, when I was researching the book than the image I have of him before, because he's far more complex and multifaceted than, frankly, even he sometimes pretended. So he, he came from a, a wealthy upper-class family that essentially lost all their money when he was tiny in the Great uh, Depression. And his father became an alcoholic. And essentially, you know, that, I think, scarred him uh, uh, throughout his life. He was the only person, he had two brothers, including a twin. And the family could then, having gone from immense wealth and privilege to being, you know, um, posh but poor, uh, they could only afford to send one of the three to university. And that was Jack Bogle because his grades was, were the greatest. So I think that you know, really fired up just an incredible drive in the young man. Uh, so he went to Princeton and worked hard there. He was not always the brightest. He did bad at mathematics originally and economics, but he's worked harder than everybody to get himself great grades. And he wrote a thesis 
uh, on this hot new thing that was growing out of Boston primarily called the mutual fund. And this was a time when the mutual fund was a pretty new radical invention and growing quickly. And that thesis got uh, came to the attention of, of uh, Walter Morgan, who was the founder of Wellington Group, one of the oldest and biggest mutual fund groups in America. Jack Bogle went there, was hired, and quickly became the, the boy wonder of the investment industry. He was the protege of Walter Morgan. So he was one of the youngest senior uh, vice presidents, and he eventually took over Wellington in the 60s uh, with a brief to reinvigorate it. Because it was a very conservative organization, and the 60s was the go-go era. It was the first dot-com boom. Of course, there wasn't Amazon and Apple, but it was Xerox and Kodak and IBM were the hot tech stocks of the day. Uh, And Jack Bogle made the fateful decision to pivot Wellington towards the future by merging with a Boston rival that managed a very hot tech-oriented growth fund. And that decision proved fateful. Essentially, he um, got fired by his partners they merged with. So when the go-go era ended in the early 70s with a horrible bear market, you know, they started fighting between themselves. And in the end, even though, you know, their performance had been doing badly, Bogle was just too much of a forceful character for them to, to tolerate. And they actually had a bigger ownership stake than he had by then. So they managed to fire him. And he managed in a Hail Mary to convince the independent boards or the funds themselves, this is how it works in the US, uh, to give him essentially a bit of a consolation prize, which was they'd set up an administrative company to do all the paperwork for the Wellington funds. And he called that Vanguard. Mm. And the rest, you know, is history. It is. But I want to just ask you a little bit, and, and this is got sort of kind of a little bit from my memory of, of the stuff that I've read uh, in preparation for our conversation today, but Walter Morgan was an interesting character as far as I can tell. Um, some, I think someone who really wanted to do good, not just necessarily focus on, on the numbers, uh, if I can put it that way. How do you think Jack Bogle was influenced by that experience or mentorship um how important was that because again we're going to come to it of course but some of the driving forces about low cost and 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 doing well making sure the invest it's you know i coming from the hedge fund industry we don't always see people who want to do well for the investor right so so how how would you describe that influence because he doesn't get a lot of um airtime, so to speak, uh, Walter Morgan. No, and I think he is—he was a titanic figure in the start of the mutual fund industry in the US. Mm. And like most people, he was the product of his experiences. And he lost a lot of his family's money in a sort of a, in a um, in a, a stupid mania in the early 1900s. And that meant that when he did set up a mutual fund company, he was very conservative. And he actually ran the first, I'm pretty sure, and certainly the biggest balance fund that both invested in stocks and bonds. And that was his thing. And his innate conservatism and that sort of balance of fixed income also meant that they were one of the few big investment company winners from the Great Crash and the Great Depression that came. Uh, so I think that just burnishes your belief that being conservative and careful and prudent is an essential thing, right? We 
I think it's hard to have not grown up in certain eras and not be shaped by them. And that shaped Walter Morgan and definitely shaped Bogle, right? Because he also had his own family sort of brushed with having money and having lost it. Uh, so I think they they merged well. Wellington wasn't necessarily then known for low fees per se, but they certainly weren't super high. Bogle was unambiguously a cheapskate his entire life. I mean, this was, you know, his family having had money and then lost it. Um, his friend Burton Malkiel once told me that Jack Bogle's favorite drink was an $8 bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. Anything more than $8 was just wildly extravagant to spend on red wine. So I think that shone through in his thesis. He talked about the importance of low fees as well mm. and in his subsequent work uh, and, and how he structured Vanguard. So the structure of Vanguard being owned by its own funds is frankly happenstance. There was no grand plan. It was, the, it was how it ended out. Uh, but the low cost is something that was very much a part of, of his being, as it were. And I think the importance of the mentorship of Walter Morgan was reflected in how Boga later on mimicked his system of always having one young, promising man or woman as a men to mentor. So he always had a, an assistant that he would coach himself and then sort of spread out through the organization to spread, his, the, spread the word of Jack Bogle. Yeah, no, interesting. Another interesting thing that actually um, you uh, you write about, um, which again something that I don't think of today, is is kind of the role that pension funds played back then. Because usually you don't think of them as first movers or, or being very um, how creative, so to speak. But actually, AT and T, their pension fund, did play a role in particular the breakup of of AT and T. Can you tell me a little bit about that? No, it's it's the the un underappreciated uh, hero of the story is actually the baby bells, as they were called. Because obviously AT&T was set up by Alexander Graham Bell, and when the government decided to break up the AT&T monopoly, they, you know, they essentially split into small regional AT&Ts, and each of them had their own pension plan, uh, a baby bell, as they were called. And it was known as the Bell Systems in Combined. Now, they still shared a bit of information, and essentially the Bell system could see that they were all invested in hundreds of mutual funds, and they were essentially, as one person said it, put it to me, swapping bananas. So mutual fund A that was owned by Bell, you know, Bell Midwest was selling IBM to mutual fund B, and vice versa. So they were just swapping these securities, and first of all, obviously charging quite a lot of money for doing so, but also this was an error of just outrageously high transaction costs, at least compared to present standards. So basically, AT&T and some of them, not all of the Bell system, but large parts of it could see that they were essentially getting the entire US stock market. They, was, they were the single biggest holders of US stocks at the time, but minus all these trading costs and the fees of, of management. So they were, if you look at almost every single one of the pioneering index funds, and sometimes this was done because they wanted to nurture the industry. They thought this was valuable. Um, one, some part of the AT&T, one of the baby bells, was almost in every single case a backer of, of the first generation of index funds. Interesting. Speaking of the pioneers of index fund, what did the first uh, index fund look like and how, how was that received back then? Well, so this is the naughty thing and why people still argue which one was the first. So the what I think is the first is okay. a, a an account, a separately managed account that Wells Fargo set up for Samsonite's pension plan that managed $6 million for Samsonite. 
And uh, Samsonite was the pioneer, mostly because the the heir of the family fortune, Keith Schwader, had studied on a gene farm at Chicago and thought it was horrific that the pension plan of Samsonite was investing in all these awful mutual funds. So that's how that happened. Gene Farmer introduced him to, to Mac McQuown at Wells Fargo. Um, but it was a separately managed account, uh, so not a fund per se. And the index they chose was all the stocks of the New York Stock Exchange and weighted just basically dollar equal dollar amount. So not an S&P 500 market cap index. And as you know, quite a lot of listeners will realize that was a logistical nightmare. I mean, even today, that's a bit annoying. But at the time when there was no electronic trading, there was no portfolio trading, it was just, you had to rebalance all the time. So although that was the first one, it was an ill-fated one. And eventually, uh, a couple of years afterwards, Wells Fargo also set up a, a pension, an S&P 500 index uh, vehicle for its own pension plan. And the Samsonite money got folded into that. So at the same time, the American National Bank of Chicago, and a guy called Rex Sinkfield, who plays a huge role later on as well, uh, he basically converted in mid-1973 one of their existing funds into an S&P 500 index tracker. So that's the first live money that in a fund structure. But it was a conversion. And in Boston, there was a startup driven by a very sort of eclectic uh, financial servant called uh, Dean LeBaron. And he thought this was just a fun new, he liked doing new things. He was a, a genuine pioneer. He just liked pioneering for the sake of it. But he set up in early 1973 uh, a, a program, basically, like a, 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 basically, you could buy it as separately managed accounts from them, an index tracker. Uh, but he got zero clients for an entire year, uh, which tells you just how much of a hard sell this was. I mean, Rex Sinkfield told me they felt like John the Baptist trying to convert all the heathens in the early days of Jesus Christ. It was uh, a hard battle. I think the most vivid quote I, I got was from Mac. And this was also internally, they were generally hated, right, by all their active colleagues. Here, Mac said it was like shoveling shit upstream, which I thought was quite an evocative uh description that harking back to his his background on a farm in illinois easy to imagine uh, what that's like now i want to insert a question uh here and that's a little bit as to how you see what has happened in this space when we look at bogle's inspiration for all of this i guess you could say that the thesis of markovich and sharp uh, which is about most people not being able to beat the market and therefore you should be long-term passive investor in bogle's own belief that we talked about, about the low cost playing a key role. And that kind of makes sense. But as we know, humans, um, we have a long, successful track record of making a mess of good things. And I'm wondering if you see some of issues with those virtues and the evolution of ETFs that we talked about earlier, where essentially we're now sort of allowing the same investors to become active investors without the experience and knowledge to some extent. No, it's a very good point. And, you know, one of the things that sometimes gets elided, even in my own writing for the FT sometimes, is that, like, the idea of some clean distinction between active and passive is a complete fantasy, right? Even if you are investing in the S&P 500 or even a broader index, like kind of the MSCI All USA Index or something, you are still choosing an index. That is a choice which index you use. And then you construct a portfolio systematically and cheaply but it's still an active choice somewhere, right? So 
I think sometimes people will say it's active and passive. In reality, it's just like for me, it's, it's systematic and discretionary are the two sides of the, the, the axes, right? Uh, and an index fund is just a systematic fund that is really cheap and broad-based that tries to harness the diversification. Now, you can be a fan of indexing and not believe in efficient markets. So, for example, a Rex Sinkfield was deeply schooled at Chicago. He was an efficient market zealot. He calls himself the Ayatollah of efficient markets, and Gene Farmer then, I guess, is the god in his pantheon. Uh, whilst a Jack Bogle was friends with a lot of active managers. He just thought, generally speaking, that they charged way too much money. And, you know, essentially many of them aren't that good. Uh, so that was his issue. So, But he just felt that rather than the efficient markets hypothesis, he called it the cost matters hypothesis. Um, my view is that, yes, what was still just a phenomenal invention, a genuine boon to humankind, uh, has now evolved into areas that I think are um, at best pointless, at worst dangerous to individual investors and potentially even to the integrity of the financial system. That I don't see any meaningful distinction between individual investors punting on some stupid gold stock or some gold ETF, right? Yes, you get more diversification with the ETF, but it's still fundamentally just taking an active punt, right? Um, and then some of the leverage and inverse ETFs. I mean, I don't want to sound too much like a statist uh, Scandinavian, but I do think there is a case for governments occasionally to say, well, look, heroin is bad for you. You should not do heroin. That has societal costs and costs to you as an individual. And we're just going to say that's illegal. Now, maybe that is not the nanny state gone amok, but I don't think so. And I also think some of these leverage ETFs are giving ordinary investors access to financial products they wouldn't be allowed to touch on a standalone basis. So, for example, my favorite example is the long VIX ETNs. Some of them are ETFs, some of them are ETNs. Um, that, you know, these are VIX futures that ordinary retail investors would not be allowed to touch mm. if they were just a standalone product. But you wrap them up in an ETF, then hey, presto, through some sort of magic, they're regulatorily blessed. And that, that just seems crazy to me. Not least because you would have made more money investing with Bernie Madoff than you would have through these Long VIX products. The Long VIX products have just burnt a staggering amount of investor money over the decade they've been around for no discernible purpose whatsoever, except to generate fees for basically the market makers and the product sellers. And at worst, these products are not just dangerous to the individual investors, but they're actually dangerous to the financial system because we can see times when they cause chaos because of some of the structures around them. For example, oil prices going negative in March 2020 or April, 20, April May 2020. And yeah. the infamously the inverse VIX products involved again in, in February 2018. Yeah. No, we, we may come back to that uh, towards the end. I want to sort of continue a little bit. Now, for me, at least also, I've always thought of Vanguard being kind of led to success by Jack Bogle. And of course it has, but but it's not quite, when I sort of read your book, it's not quite what happened because he ran into some health issues and that opened the door for, for another Jack, so to speak. So, so tell us a little bit about what happened there. And, and they ended up having a pretty interesting relationship, I guess you could say. Yes. I mean, 
Jack Bogle was just a really interesting character, right? Um, look, unambiguously, no Jack Bogle, no Vanguard. No right. question. But I think we, we talked about the importance of narratives, right? And we as humans always like narratives with a clean, clear hero. They might, we might like them complicated, but we like a single hero, right? So it's, you know, back in the day, Thomas Carlyle said the history of mankind is but the history of great men. And, and this was at the time when there were just men, of course, and certainly in finance. Um, but, you know, we know reality is a lot more complicated than that. And even in the founding of Vanguard, Vanguard wouldn't probably have existed without the help of some of his aides, like most notably Jan Trondowski, who managed the first index fund for Vanguard, the Vanguard 500 fund, and his assistant, Jim Reapy, who went on to have a glittering career in the investment industry, primarily at T. Rowe Price afterwards as well. But Jack Bogle was a great talent spotter. I mean, it's incredible how many of his people have gone on to leadership positions, including, at, ironically, at Wellington, where they'd had this horrific uh, divorce. Uh, but I think the most consequential one for the growth of Vanguard, that really we would not know Vanguard as the giant, the titanic company it is today without him, is Jack Brennan. And he was the yin to, to Bogle's yang that, you know, they complemented themselves, each other, quite nicely in that Bogle was a charismatic visionary and the strategic mind. And Bogle was just, I mean, I don't want to denigrate just saying just an operations man, but he was a guy that kept every train running on time. And he was an incredible manager and a man manager and could do all the detail stuff. And was always on top of everything and professionalized Vanguard in many respects. And they also complemented themselves in that they were, both incredibly hard workers. Uh, so they, they started competing in who could get to the office earliest, right? So they were incredibly close until they suffered, sadly, uh, towards the end, uh, a, a terrible falling out over who would and when pick over the reins of Vanguard. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, we've spoken about the rise of, of Vanguard, uh, which, of course, today is a mega player in, in the world of passive investing and so on. But I want to pivot a bit, and I also want to talk of another sort of the rise of another mega player, namely what we know as today as BlackRock under the leadership of, of Larry Fink. Now, this journey was also not something that happened in a straight line, I, I would say is fair to say. So so take us back to the beginning of, of the journey, which for me at least kind of dates back to what you mentioned earlier um, you know, there was Wells Fargo, uh, certainly part of it, and 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 certainly two characters that I remember from the book, Patricia Dunn and later Fred Grauer, I think he was called. Yes, so Wells Fargo, we kind of left them when they invented the index fund, but then they kept building up and started this, basically became this quant factory is how I think of them. The thing is that, you know, hiring all these academics and brilliant people was really expensive. And ironically, even though Wells Fargo became the leader in indexing, uh, as that was growing institutionally in the 80s, uh, it never made any money. And Mac left because he'd gone tired of budget battles with, uh, well, basically Ransom Cook had left and, and he wanted to do something else, a very entrepreneurial guy. Bill Faust, one of his made lieutenants, took over the ship, but he you know, had lots of battles with Wells Fargo, the bank. So Wells Fargo, the bank, kind of hated the fact that colleagues on the investment management side were getting paid more money than they were, but they weren't actually producing any P&L, or importantly, they were producing lots of L, but not a lot of P. 
So there were all these battles. So Faust took a lot of his main people and started a rival called Melon Capital. And it was kind of imploding. And uh, Patty Dunn, who'd started as a secretary, their part-time secretary, but actually had just become this brilliant young protege of many of the, the people that worked there, she suggested that they hire back somebody who Phil, Bill Faust had, had sacked a few years earlier called Fred Grauer. So former academic, great academic career, but then entered the practical world of finance. But he wasn't, I mean, he was a top salesman for Merrill at the time on the West Coast. But I think if Wells Fargo hadn't been a complete disaster zone, he would never have gotten the job. I mean, this was, this was a, a desperate rescue operation, essentially. And Fred Grauer managed to stabilize it and put it the ship on the right course just as all the tides started pushing in the favor of uh, passive. Because in the mid-80s, essentially, you know, interest rates were falling and falling and falling, and we started these twin bull runs for stocks and bonds that, you know, obviously a few interruptions here and there have basically has basically continued to this day. And passive, you know, people became more and more cost-conscious as well. So passive was growing and Wells Fargo managed to grow. Eventually, and we see this many times through history, uh, Grauer fell out with Barclays, which had bought WFIA and turned into Barclays Global Investors. Uh, and he was replaced by his own protege, Patty Dunn, mm. uh, who was then by then sort of co-CEO with him. And you know, he was her new mentor. They had a falling out over that, naturally. You can see a pattern emerging here. Um, but she was brilliant. So... She was not an academic like a lot of the other BGR people or former academic, but she was great at understanding that and translating that to investors, essentially. And she's a God-level people manager. Everybody tells me, everybody had a story about what a wonderful person she was. And she saw that something started when Grau was there called Webs, which was basically a copy of the ETF arm of State Street that started called Spider, S-P-D-R, uh, and the ETF Spy, uh, they thought the potential was for that to be a lot bigger. And this at a time at, you know, when that magazine you mentioned would maybe change its right. name, ETF. Um, but it wasn't a hot thing at the time. So Spider had kind of languished and had grown some assets, but it wasn't a huge thing. Uh, QQQ had launched the, the tech, the NASDAQ ETF with a bang, but then basically that had imploded when the dot-com bubble burst. But she saw, and some other people at, at BGI, most notably Lee Crane first, as a strategy supremo, saw the potential for the ETF to be sort of indexing 2.0, maybe 3.0, depending on how you define it. We can use the more flexible structure of an ETF to essentially create blocks of risk of different types. Credit, investment grade, high yield, US equities, sectors, and so on, and build an entire menu of investment products that a financial advisor, a hedge fund, an institutional investor can assemble in whatever they, way they want, and throughout the day as well. And then you can maybe even build products on top of that, the options. So they essentially managed to get Barclays' blessing, and this was the presence of, of Bob Diamond, uh, who was the head of Barclays Capital at the time, to go on a massive buildup that you now Silicon Valley would call a blitz scaling. But basically, they just chucked money on advertising and rolling out products at a dizzying rate across every major part of the investment real estate map, essentially, long before people thought there was any potential here. 
And they managed to essentially build up this first mover advantage because in ETFs, nobody cares about you know, the difference between Russell 2000 ETF 1, 2, or 3. You just go to the cheapest one. The cheapest one is usually the biggest one. So if you get there first, then you have a huge advantage. Um, mm. And she and, and Lee Cranefuss built um, webs into what is now called iShares, which is the crown jewel of BlackRock and why BlackRock bought BGI at the depths of the financial crisis in 2009. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sure they didn't realize at the time how great the name iShares came <laughs> since Apple started to use the I in everything they did. But uh, yeah, that was around 2000. I think they rebranded to to iShares. Now, uh, Don, um, Patricia Don, she didn't stay at BGI. I think at some point she tried to do a, a, a buyout uh, with a private equity uh, fund, which didn't uh, succeed. Um, but I want to move on because you just mentioned the financial crisis. So I want to move on to that period, sort of 2008, 2009, because that becomes another pivotal time for index and ETFs. Um, so tell us what happened at this meeting at a baseball game that led to the deal of the century, so to speak, and the rise of, of Larry Fink, even if he didn't even participate in the meeting, I think. <laughs> No, so if we cast our minds back to 2009, this was April. Um, you know, the depths were in from the in the financial crisis, but we certainly didn't know it at the time. I remember things right. being still scary as hell. Uh, Barclays had avoided taking government bailout after uh, the financial crisis, but had acquired the U.S. parts of Lehman, and that and many other things were dragging it down. And it was desperate to avoid a government bailout that would restrict bonuses. I mean, let's face it, it was that cynical. Uh, so instead of taking government money, they decided to sell the family silver, including BGI. So CVC, a big private equity firm, put in a bid uh, that was accepted for iShares specifically. Now, and then BlackRock would have, uh, BG, uh, Barclays would have had to sell the rest of BGI off piecemeal. Now, BlackRock, led by Fink, realized this was the wrong move. And, you know, Fink has become a little bit controversial, but I still think has one of the finest strategic minds in the investment industry. Uh, he realized that you can't really disentangle iShares from BGI. So iShares was a brand, its own marketing arm, a sales team, its own culture. But the fun fundamental financial engineering was done at BGI. BGI was kind of the, the best financial factory in the world. They'd gone not just beyond index funds and quant funds, but pretty much anything they could construct there and just churn out in scale. Uh, so he wanted to buy the whole thing. So he sent Rob Capito to a baseball game that Bob Diamond was attending in New York in April 2009, where they thrashed out essentially the contours, the very first contours of a deal for Barclays to sell all of BGI to BlackRock. And thereby transforming BlackRock from a really big, well-respected, uh, investment house in New York to being essentially a global empire. Um, and it took quite a few years of hard work and quite a lot of sackings and bruised egos. Uh, but I think nobody can look back at that deal and not think that it is certainly the most successful acquisition in the history of investment management, but arguably in finance and almost globally, right? I mean, it's staggering that probably just now, BGI now is worth more than all of, all of uh, but BlackRock is worth more than all of Barclays today. Uh, so it's been just a phenomenal success. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Now, of course, we, we've already touched upon it. I mean, Larry Fink, uh, he's uh, an interesting character. And I want to I want you to talk a little bit about the backstory of, of Larry Fink, because, again, it is not necessarily as straightforward as, as you might think of someone with that success uh, today. So how, how would you sort of describe his, his uh, getting to that point uh, of, of being able to pull off a deal like that? Well, this takes me to one of my favorite issues in journalism, but maybe really in human nature, right? That I'm sure we all know this intuitively, but going through the the backstory of a lot of the some of the heroes and characters and and sometimes villains in my book, you realize how many of them have suffered some sort of horrific setback in their lives early on, and it didn't break them, but it made them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Jack Bogle's family background was really tough, and that made him who he was. And then being sacked by Wellington by the partners he brought in just basically kind of just ratcheted that drive up to just thermonuclear levels. And I think the same thing with, with Fink in that, like he definitely didn't come from sort of a hard scrabble background, but his father was a cobbler and his mother was a university teacher. He was not the brightest person in his family. So, you know, whilst his brother could focus on school, he still had to work at the help out of the shoe shop. He studied a bit of political science because he didn't know what else to study then drifted into real estate because he thought that sounded interesting and there was a professor there that sort of mentored him uh, and then drifted from that to Wall Street but screwed up his interview at Goldman Sachs, notably, uh, ended up at First Boston. Uh, and there, I think there was just this perfect sort of alignment of circumstance. He'd studied real estate, knew the mortgage market, just at a time when people were maybe starting to sort of securitization engine was really starting to rev up and and Larry Fink just proved brilliant at managing that market and trading and running a team of bond traders so together with Solomon Brothers Larry Fink was one of the ultimate big swinging dicks of bond trading in the 1980s he was phenomenally successful he was the youngest managing director in first Boston history he was the youngest person on the management committee in first Boston history uh, but then we see this occasionally, right? Things just collapsed. His team you know, essentially put on a wrong way bet on interest rates. Their hedges were badly structured and blew up, and they lost the bank $100 million. Now, he'd made the bank many times that over the years, but he still he went from basically CEO in waiting to outcast and eventually did leave First Boston. Uh, to found BlackRock with a friend of his from from Lehman Brothers. Um, But I think that setback, like many setbacks for many people, actually can really provide the fuel that you need to prove doubters wrong. Uh, And I suspect if we go through the, you know, the backstory of a lot of wildly successful women and men in history, some sort of personal tragedy or professional setback is quite often there, I suspect. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, we know it as BlackRock today, but it didn't start out as BlackRock, so to speak. There was another Black in there. There was a Black Stone. Yes. How, how, well, how did that fit in and, and, and kind of how important was that, I guess? Pretty important, I guess, to the beginnings of BlackRock. Yeah, so he, he left First Boston to set up. Essentially, he was talking to a friend of his at Lehman Brothers, or Shearson Lehman at the time, called Ralph Schlossstein another mortgage bank. He was more on the investment banking side. He worked in the Carter administration. 
And they decided that this was all also after Black Monday, right? So they thought that the financial system was getting way more complicated than most people understood and could appreciate. So they wanted to start essentially a technology-driven, risk-management-sophisticated asset management firm that would basically build a better risk management model to underpin everything they did and build products on top of that, essentially. And that product is Aladdin today, which you know is used by trillions of dollars of assets under management, not just at BlackRock, but elsewhere as well. Um, but they had no name recognition. Black Fink had had this kind of flaming out at first Boston. So they got in touch with a fellow friend of theirs, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone. And Blackstone was then an up-and-coming private equity firm. It is not the Blackstone we know today, but Blackstone wanted to kind of build a bigger empire. So they said, look, we'll house you. We'll give you a credit line that you can draw down uh, in return for a 50% stake. I think it was a 40% stake or something. Uh, and they called it, because Blackstone had an emerging brand, they called it Blackstone Financial Management. And that was the name until... And I think this is interesting with Fink compared to many other types of finance, and certainly Schwartzman, is that, look, Fink is not... He, obviously, most people care about money, but Fink wanted to build something great, not necessarily have the biggest ownership stake in it. So he and Schlossstein, together with some other partners and, and friends that they got from Shares and Lehman and, and, and First Boston, like Rob Capito and Sue Wagner and Barbara Novick, um, they started using equity to attract high-quality people. They just they didn't care about necessarily having maintaining the biggest ownership stake. They just wanted to build something great. And Schwartzman was fine with building something great, but he didn't want it to be diluted. And eventually that led to a rupture, uh, a pretty nasty divorce, where essentially Schlossstein and Fink forced an exit and a new name, uh, and they chose the name BlackRock. They first thought about Bedrock, but they thought that was too reminiscent of the Flintstones. And I have to admit, I agree with right. them. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Let, let's for, fast forward a little bit here. We we have BlackRock now. And, and before we go to a few other topics I wanted to discuss with you, I just want to ask sort of their mete meteoric rise from that time and 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 to now, so since the financial crisis and, and today, what do you think is kind of their, the secret to their success? Because it's been absolutely phenomenal. Of BlackRock. Yeah. So I'd say... There are many aspects. Some of it is just smart M&A at the right time. Uh, and they've moved pretty ruthlessly when they've dealt with something. So they've done, the first one was State Street Research, not associated with the biggest State Street. Uh, most famously, the Merrill Lynch Investment Managers was the first big deal that really turned BlackRock from a bond house into a broader asset manager. And then the acquisition of BGI, which really transformed it into what we know today. Uh, but the fundamental glue is, is Fink. Um, because like I said, he has a strategic mind about the investment management that I think is probably more tuned to trends than most people. Like I talk to a lot of people in that industry and there are some absolutely astonishingly brilliant people. Um, but you know, brilliant people make stupid mistakes all the time. And I'm sure Fink does as well, but he's been very good at seeing where the puck is heading. And then when mm. he needs to be decisive, being utterly decisive and ruthless. So, you know, the pain in BGI when they got acquired by BlackRock was immense. A lot of people 
Oh, lots of people left anyway because it's natural. Their stock sure. options paid out, and they were wealthy men and women. Uh, but a lot of people got sacked because Fink realized actually, look, there's some brilliant people there. We'll keep some of them, but this is a factory. We don't care who mans the kind of the the buttons. Essentially, as long as we have some people, they don't really care. Like investors don't really care whether it's BGI on the tin or Blacker on the tin or State Street. They just want a good, well engineered product, investment product, essentially. Um, so he sees where the investment industry is heading, and he saw it with ETS way before everybody else. He saw that ETFs were not just essentially an index fund 2.0. It was something far more powerful, potentially, uh, that you could do this bundling of risk into these ETFs and create building blocks for everything from sophisticated sovereign wealth funds and hedge funds to ordinary retail investors. And if you can provide that, that service, those products, cheaply and more efficiently than everybody else, then you're going to be a winner in an industry that, let's face it, still has really, really fat margins. Uh, so it's a bit like, you know, Bezos famously said, your margin is my opportunity. And I kind of think that's what um, both BlackRock and to an extent Vanguard sees on both asset management and financial advice. Um, and I think like think it's interesting that, you know, it has this strategic mind, but quite a lot of people I've talked to as well said, he, even people that frankly don't like him as a person say that his, his grasp on the minute details of every aspect of BlackRock was astonishing. That it wasn't just that he was a Bogle-like sort of strategic visionary, but he also knew every single part of the business really, really well. And I think he's also surrounded himself with people that, you know, they seem kind of monolithically in agreement externally, but probably people that will, like people that see themselves as friends and colleagues and equals that will argue things. And you you need input from alternative viewpoints all the time. Otherwise, there is a danger of having this sort of imperial CEO tendency when you think you can do no wrong. And that is something that I think BlackRock has so far to an extent avoided. Yeah, no, very interesting insight. Thanks for, for sharing that. I want to shift gear and, and leave your book and pick another part of your brain, so to speak. And and that has to do with quant investing in, in general. Um, although before we leave the passive investment world completely, I do want to ask, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but I do want to ask a little bit about sort of where you stand in this debate between passive and, and active, the, the kind of the, the benefits and, and the dangers. And there's kind of a couple of of points uh, in particular that that interest me uh, a little bit, and and one of them actually has to do with Larry Fink. We'll come to that in a second. But the first one, and this has been obviously, I'm sure, in it, it, it's in the media a lot. But the common share of ownership is one danger that that has been talked about. And the the reason I see it as an issue, and I I don't know if Jack Bogle was referring to this when he voiced his concern, but. It's just the level of influence that these people have in terms of voting rights. I mean, you kind of just wait for them to sort of start flexing their muscles. Um, so I'm not thinking about price fixing or anything like that. I'm just thinking about if they want something kind of or, or a new direction um, and they sit with a big part of the vote uh, voting shares, what's there to stop them? 
Well, there are lots of things to stop them. Um, but I agree, this is the, the one concern I have uh, that is the, the least tangible, but the biggest concern I have with the growth of passive. I mean, right. with all the caveats that you know, we talked about, active and passive is, are the blurry concepts. Um, if we talk about product proliferation, I think there's way too many silly investment products that are under the header of investment uh, index fund. I think you know the the power that accrues to index providers themselves as a result of this is something we need to watch. I'm unconvinced by the distortive effect it's having on markets. Or oh, I, I see the distortive effects where they can be glimpsed as not any more malevolent or, or bad than the impact of any new investment product, whether it's a mutual fund, investment trust, or hedge fund, and so on. I think this concentration of corporate power is the one that gives me the biggest pause for concern, and certainly Jack Bogle as well, before he passed away. Now, I think people want them to flex their muscles. This is the why I actually have some sympathy with the Black Rocks and Vanguards and State Streets of the world, and you know, on the active side of Fidelity or Capital Group, that they're under enormous pressure to take stances, more aggressive stances on a range of issues. And I happen to agree on many of those issues, but I don't necessarily think that I think that asset managers are the ones that should stake out positions on them. Um, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think you know, major public policy issues are better left to democratically elected politicians, even if we might not like uh, the current situation. And by trying to enlist, even for the greatest causes on the in the world, to enlist the clout of an asset manager, probably an asset manager, I think stinks a little bit of privatizing public policy to an extent. Um, so I'm not crazy about that. But I think, frankly, most of these index fund providers are aware of this and are very careful of overstepping their mark. But you can see that the push and pull between people that want them to take a, a passive role and people who say you can't be passive, and that includes people on the left and right. Paul mm -hmm. Singer, famously a very big GOP or Republican donor who runs Elliott Management, is incredibly thoughtful and smart on this as well. Um, he, his fear is that passive investors are, are passive owners as well, and they encourage corporate sloth. That they're not engaged enough. They need to get be, get more engaged. Now, I don't think he wants them to push them to be greener necessarily, but you can see that they kind of get attacked by either side. Barbara Novick, um, Larry Fink's former policy, public policy supremo and one of the co-founders of the company, call this the Goldilocks problem. That is, is, is their porridge too hot or too cold or just right? Because they seem to be getting attacks by every political side, right? So I have sympathy for them, but frankly, this is just the responsibility that comes with great power and influence. And it is something they cannot duck in the coming decade, because even the absence of a decision on these issues is a decision with consequences, right? You can't just stick your head in the sand here. Because that is also something, given that their size and given the growth trajectory, has consequences of, of a huge magnitude. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, well, two things actually springs to mind. You mentioned um, that um, that Singer didn't want them to become greener. Well, I mean, in that sense, you could say Larry Fink has certainly flexed his muscle because he's been out saying, "Well, we're going to double down on on ESG friendly um, funds." So, you know, this might just be the beginning of of some of that. And I take your point that it's. You know, it's um, difficult to be in the middle and do the right thing. Uh, you kind of at some point maybe have to take uh, a side. And 
he seems to be doing it a little bit, I guess. No, he's, he definitely is. Look, I mean, Larry yeah. Fink is a conservationist and is pretty green as a person. But I don't think for a second he would be pushing this at BlackRock if it wasn't good for business. So this is the, the strategic mind that I mentioned. You could see ETFs and where it was going and knew that BlackRock, if they want to be a global player or the global player, they needed to get in there. And it was kind of buy or build, and really you had to buy because you know the scale, the benefits of scale are enormous and first mover advantage. And with ESG, look, he saw you know ESG started long before BlackRock like really threw its weight behind it. But you could really see that he realized this was something that you know they were, I heard, losing mandates because they weren't seen as green enough. Right. So okay. it's a commercial imperative. Uh, it happens to align with how he also thinks as a person, but I think. There are commercial realities behind this as well. And why also I think that we should be careful about just blaming asset managers because they make convenient targets, especially when they stick their head above the parapets as Larry Fink does, but they are fundamentally asset managers. They are not asset owners. And the onus has to be on the asset owners. Like if the asset owner, let's say a pension fund, ABC in Sweden or Denmark or Norway or wherever, wants BlackRock to be greener with its money and wants to divest of coal and energy and so on, that is fine. But then they are responsible to their plan members and have to answer if that comes at a cost of performance in the long run. So I feel like fundamentally there's a lot of blame shifting going on. I don't think that asset managers can duck this issue entirely because, frankly, they are embracing it with alacrity and they're clearly kind of... Fanning it. I mean, I get probably five or 10 press releases a day about some sort of ESG um, plan or announcement of varying degrees of interesting to outright marketing bullshit, frankly. Um, but, you know, it is not just the asset manager's job to do this. And frankly, in this being hopelessly out of sync with the sort of ESG trends these days, again, elected politicians. We all just need to pay more for energy and consumption. And that's not politically popular, but that's fundamentally what we have to do if we're serious about this. So activists, rather than trying to bully Vanguard and BlackRock to kind of divest for X or Y, which does zero to cut emissions, they should be lobbying politicians to say, we need a carbon tax. We need more nuclear power or something else that actually has a meaningful impact on these issues. Uh, if we don't want boards, CEOs to sit on boards, pass a law. This is not rocket science. Um, but, you know, in this day and age where there's so much political polarization, we seem to almost be forced to look towards the investment industry for solutions. And I think that's uh, a bit of a red herring. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a little bit scary. The other thing I've noticed about that I think is, is an interesting issue, at least, I'm not sure there is a solution for that. It's just a you know, how some of these big index rebalances can really influence. I guess we saw last year with Tesla, uh, that had a huge kind of influence in, in the markets. And and if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw you actually on television a couple of days ago talking about Tesla options and the volume that's uh, going on in that. I mean, it's it's certainly creating some some interesting dynamics in in the markets. I'm not sure it's, it's for the good. No, I think Tesla... Tesla is the example I've used in my book because it's a big, sexy, interesting company and the effects seem to be huge from the index inclusion. In reality, 
several studies have actually shown that the index inclusion effects, basically the uplift that you get from being included in a major index like the S&P 500, 500 mm. has been fading quite dramatically for some time and basically is non-existent. The problem is that ma markets, as Soros has mentioned many times, have these embedded feedback loops. There's, re there's reflexivity embedded in everything. So it might not be true that index funds pushed Tesla's stock up. But if enough investors believe, and let's face it, Tesla has a lot of retail investors that will grasp onto any reason to buy the stock, then it becomes true. So it's unambiguously true that when Tesla made it into S&P 500, that was one of the biggest rebalancing trading periods in, in the S&P 500's history because they never had an index inclusion of a company that big in market cap. But broadly speaking, this secret, the dirty secret, not even dirty really, but it, it was fine. It worked fine. In BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, everybody else managed to do this without any particular hitch. There was more trading and there was some shuffling around of money, but it was kind of in the price by the time it happened. And I kind of think that the massive ramp up we saw in Tesla is not because it was because people were overestimating the index inclusion effect and were front running it to a wildly exaggerated degree. But if you look at many other companies, there is, I think, certainly in some of the smaller companies, like if you make it into the Russell 2000 or you drop out of it, that has an impact. I definitely, this is why I always say that, look, index funds and passive investing is clearly having an impact on markets. I just, I, I struggle with proponents of indexing like me who, who deny that because it's just so big. How can it not affect its own environment? But is that effect any worse than you know, anything else going on? Uh, are hedge funds doing basis trades in treasuries? That's affecting the treasury market. Is that evil? Is that terrible? Is that something we need to outlaw? No, it's just the markets and the markets adapt all the time. So I'm always fascinated by how many people that seem to have such a high opinion about markets seem to think that they cannot adapt to the presence of passive money. Unless we forget, passive money is still a small minority. There is still vastly more active money out there charging you know, egregious fees. This is an industry that has profit margins greater than big tech. So the, the idea that we should cry a river for the fate of, of, of the investment industry still, I, I struggle with that argument, put that way. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 perfectly fair. I want to do maybe one more uh, sort of of these issues before uh, just sort of moving on to the final segment. Um, but and you touch on it yourself, really, and and that's just kind of you know in terms of of flows, um, because we now have maybe you know it's still growing, but it it's a it's it's a pretty big force uh, in terms of a type of investor that doesn't look at value but just look at what is the flow telling me what to do. And, and I've heard you talk about this in terms of, you know, quote unquote, the stress test from last year with the, um, with the COVID crisis. And the challenge for me about it is that I'm not so sure we've really had a stress test yet because every time, as, as long as the Federal Reserve and other central banks are willing to throw in what they did last year, they prevent the flows and the crisis from being long in time. I think it's the time element because certainly as a you know market participant for more than 30 years the, the, the what and we see it in in our industry as well with with trend following it, the challenge becomes when 
the quote unquote the, the crisis or the move against you become long. I mean, like we saw the ten year sort of bear market inequities from from two thousand and and so on and so forth. These blips we've had the last few years, 2018, 2020, I'm not sure people have even, you know, people have invested in index fund, even have enough time to consider, oh, should we sell or should we not? So I don't think we necessarily have had the stress test. And that's what concerns me a little bit. I think it could put some some real pressure on, on the markets if we get a prolonged bear market of some sort. So... I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, the central bank put has been a little bit more hyperactive in recent mm. years, and it has embedded a kind of a buy the dip mentality in markets. But I think the idea that the system hasn't been stress tested is just plain wrong. Like these aren't blips. We had a once a century pandemic that created the biggest economic crash in the history of w the world, like long before we have data. This is Black Death level. I mean, we'd have to go back to the Black Death to see something comparable. <laughs> then we had a financial crisis that was the biggest and most global financial crisis in history. I'd argue it was bigger and more global than the Great Depression, but we just handled it better. And mm -hmm. the idea that there's some sort of counterfactual history where central banks don't exist well, yeah, all hell would have broken loose. But I think what happens to index fund would have been roughly 5,000th on the list of shit that we worry about. Take March 2020, for example, as a more present day sort of example. If the Fed hadn't acted and acted quicker and more aggressively than they did in 08, 07, 08, for example, I think they learned that lesson. Maybe there is a danger that they overlearn these lessons and they do, you do need a bit of a cleansing occasionally. But I think like at that time, we were so worried about you know, having a global health crisis, a global economic crisis, and a global financial crisis all on top of each other at the same time. I'm very glad the central banks decided, screw this, we're doing everything. We're just chucking money at absolutely anything that moves. But let's say if central banks hadn't acted as aggressively, specifically the Fed in March 2020, could more issues have arisen in the index fund universe, specifically credit ETFs? Definitely. But the more I've passed and done post-mortems into the guts and entrails of what happened there, I feel increasingly confident that the massive gargantuan systemic shit show waiting to happen sooner before credit ETFs were bond mutual funds. Traditional bond mutual funds have been around for a century that were perilously close. In countries like Sweden, there were swaths of them that were being frozen. But we were very close to essentially large parts in the entire fixed income universe stopping to function. Now, that would have also hurt fixed income ETFs. That would have frozen them even more. But you could still transact in them. Like, you might not like the price you can transact, but that's a market. The ETFs, the credit ETFs, were the only true free market when it came to credit in March 2020. We could price risk throughout the day. So they traded massive gaps down to the net asset value that was stale because there was hardly any trading going on. But the fact that they had that secondary trading valve, it was like a pressure valve that released pressure from them. And in bond funds, and this is one of my favorite sort of themes, is that we've seen this occasion as well with classic 40 act mutual funds in the US or USITs. There is an incentive towards bank-like runs. 
in that if you know this, like if you manage a bond fund and you have a redemption, especially in time of crisis, you quite often can't you can't sell the high yield stuff, or certainly not at a price you think is attractive. So you sell what you can, not what you want, and that's usually the higher grade stuff to realize, like, get some cash in the door and pay exiting investors. That means the remaining investors are stuck in a vehicle with crapper quality, essentially, to put it bluntly. And in extremists, and this happened famously with one mutual fund in the US, you know, they sold all the good stuff. This was a high yield fund that essentially, by the end of it, was a non-rated distressed fund in drag with daily liquidity, and they had to gate, and it caused problems. Not problems that were systemic, but there were people who were worried that it might have caused something like that. Uh, with an ETF, so the cost of liquidity is borne by the remaining investors. So you have every incentive, if you think a fund is going down or is having trouble, to get that out the door before the next guy. Just like with a bank run, you want to get your money out before it collapses. With ETFs, the cost of liquidity is borne by the seller. That just strikes me as fundamentally fairer. That yes, if you some of these ETFs were trading at a 10% discount to the net asset value, well, that's the price of instant liquidity. If you wanted your money in then, right. then you do that. That's fine. That's that's okay. And the remaining investors don't bear that cost. And there is hopefully at some point, some opportunistic money that will think, actually, we think this is being mispriced, that the true price is actually higher, and we'll take advantage of that. That's the magic of markets, that they're pretty adaptive. So did the Fed bail out credit ETFs? Yes, but they bailed out everything. And I think there were many other things that were going to crack under pressure before credit ETFs. And actually, I should have been more precise in my question because I wasn't actually talking about necessarily ETFs. I think your points are absolutely valid and very solid. I was actually thinking about the whole space uh, and yeah. it's really the mutual funds that that I, I'm concerned well, about because they have that. But but I think you, you, you make a great point. And I want to, if I may, I want to transition that passion into <laughs> the whole thing about um, quant the, you know the quantitative uh, investment world which you yeah exactly that you you love and so my first question is really kind of uh, pretty broad and um, the benefits to you I mean when you think about investing the benefits that you see of quantitative investment structures or strategies just very briefly what are they and then I want to ask you what strategies? in the quantitative space do you like and and do you most believe in? So the reason why I like quants is, I mean, maybe before I wanted to be a war correspondent, I wanted to be a physicist or an aeronautical engineer. And I realized I was too dumb to be anything other than a mediocre high school physics teacher, probably in the end. So I thought journalist was a better choice. Uh, some of it is just professional in that I think, um, Lots of financial journalists cover the big personalities. Quants don't always have that, right? And for a lot of journalists, they get scared of complexity and certainly even numbers. That's sometimes a little bit depressing. I, I like numbers and I think complexity is kind of fun to unpick. And quite often you realize that the more the time you spend with it, it's actually not that complicated. So for me, the reason why I think quantitative investing is going to essentially take over the world and this idea of we talking about old school active passive buckets is just going to become increasingly redundant is that I think we're moving all towards a, a rules-based investing, essentially. That a lot of what quants do is stuff that active managers have for decades, generations, centuries even, done. It's just done systematically in a cheaper way. So it's more transparent and cheaper. That's kind of what 
an index fund is. An index fund is just a really simple quant fund that just has a rule that is buy all the stocks in the SP 500, essentially, for example. And I think it's the future. I mean, I, I struggle to see any other industry that is not going to be ruled more by technology and rules-based approaches in the future. I mean, we can see it in every walk of life, right? So I think there are corners of finance that are going to be more immune from this. Uh, but, you know, quants are invading private markets as well. They're invading lots of uh, areas that we thought were completely inhospitable to rules-based investing. And it's going to be way harder. Like, for example, I'd be warier of quant strategies yeah, in private debt, for example, than a quant strategy in large-cap US equities. Um, but that doesn't mean that can't, might not change in 10, 20 years' time. Because fundamentally, if you throw a lot of really smart people at a problem, they tend to try and manage to find some way of making it better, I think. And that's kind of why I see you in quant. And on what strategies I like best, I mean, it's like choosing your favorite child, right? I love them all equally. It is, yeah. Uh, so I obviously, you know, I think trend falling is interesting. I'll have to tell you that, Nils, uh, given your background. Yeah. But I, for me, like index funds, they're the simplest, sure. cheapest. I like that it's transparent. It's not as black box as people think. Uh, in quant finance, and an ETF or an index fund is fundamentally a really simple, cheap in uh, fund that, if I don't get a kind of an allocation to Medallion or Two Sigmas of the uh, top funds or DE Shaw, then I'm pretty confident that like a broad-based global equity index fund is going to be the vast majority of discretionary and systematic investors over the next twenty years. So yeah, that, I think my favorite quant strategy is is cap weighted market indices. Well, that's a good answer, but of course, as you said, I'm I'm highly yeah. biased, having spent thirty plus years in in trend following and and managed futures. And but what I loved about what you said is this thing about you know rules based because I think that's the and and actually I think that what what people often um, you know misunderstand uh, about the trend following space is they see it as a very complex strategy. And, and then we try and tell them, actually, it's not as complex as you think, but then it swings over to the point where people say, no, it's so simple that you shouldn't even pay for it. It's kind of, you know, what the hell is going on here? Um, but I, I want to stay with, I want to stay with trend following just to, for, for my last couple of questions here, because, uh, you know, it has been described. And what was interesting about my conversation with Steve Forrester, who wrote the book uh, with, with Andrew Lowe about the perfect portfolio he actually, at the end, when I asked him, he said, you know, trend following is pretty close to the perfect portfolio for the because of the massive level of diversification that it offers in terms of markets, in terms of timeframes, in terms of being long and short, and, and all of those things. And, and of course, I work for a firm where we now have a 47-year continuous track record. Not many no. firms uh, and uh, you know can say that. But what I've heard throughout all of my career is that people, and, and when I say people, obviously I don't mean, mean mean you, but I mean people in the financial press, they they love to talk about the death of trend following in particular. It really comes up every two or three years uh, like a clockwork. But why do you think that is? Do you have any insights from, from, from your, where you sit and look at the quantitative world? Why do people like to say that or think that it's, Oh, because it hasn't made a lot of money for a couple of years now. It's never going to work. Well, again. it's not. 
a couple of years, though, right? I mean, so there are exceptions. There are well, it depends on who you yeah, look exactly. at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, broadly, yeah, you, but yeah. the thing is, you can always find an exception to prove the rule whether that trending trend fund trending is is amazing or awful. But broadly sure. speaking, as an industry, trend followers have had a hard, tr tough decade uh, after having taken a lot of AUM after 2008. So I think that's fundamentally it, right? Why the media cares or why people write about it. But also investors, you know, investors aren't dumb. They've kind of been ditching this as well because it hasn't been working. And a lot they of high-profile sure. trend followers, like Winton's had a very tough decade. Because they left trend followers. Yeah, exactly. You know. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> in, at the wrong time, right? At the wrong time. No, exactly. so I, I like trend following because I, I think the idea that essentially the holy grail, in a certainly for a big institutional investor, is uncorrelated returns. Mm. And, and the diversification that you've historically managed to get from trend following has been hugely valuable. My fear, and I do think like trend following is going to be around, I think there are two fears. First, that I don't think that all strategies work forever. That I think markets are pretty smart at adapting. And I think there were a lot, there was a lot of money that went into trend following after a wait. And that might, you know, in the short run, might actually make some trends work pretty well. But I think if more people are aware of this, it becomes harder to do. Certainly, you can't do a static way that you did 20, 30 years ago. You have to iterate all the time. And secondly, I rather suspect that the reason why trend following became so hot after 08 is because 07, 08 was kind of the picture perfect example for how trend can work. But not all crises are built that way and play out in that way where, you know, there were big, long trends that trend followers could ride, not lots of short, sharp ones. And I think that a lot of the sort of... Uh, trend followers, portfolio ballast or crisis risk offset is essentially data mining on the back of one really big example, which is the financial crisis. Uh, I suspect, I think we are moving in, we are, have been for a while in a new market regime that I always call sudden shocks, that we the market booms, the rallies are longer and stronger and more tranquil, like they have lower realized vol than ever before. And we've seen that certainly since 2017 or so. And when those booms are interrupted, for whatever reason, they are far more violent uh, for all sorts of reasons, like trend following might be adding to it, options, gamma, um, you know, market liquidity atrophying, uh, and so on. And I think that kind of environment is going to be really tough on, let's say, medium and long-term trend followers. But there'll be different environments that work for different styles. And what I know as a... If I was running a big pension plan, I'd say I don't really know to a high degree of confidence what kind of environment we're going to be in for the next 10 years. So I don't feel comfortable choosing a particular tenor of trend following that will do well and won't look terribly. And certainly at a cost where I can generally just buy beta for free almost. Uh, so I think that's going to be tough. I definitely don't think trend following is dead. We wrote one of the trend following is dead articles. Uh, though I think like oh, well, did? I think okay. we had a question mark. It was deliberately <laughs> provocative because we thought, well, if we write this and we ended on a cautious note, partially because we thought a headline that like that would be such a classic counterintuitive, you know, bottom ring at the bottom. Uh, and trend following did do better since then as well. Uh, but I don't think it's ever going to go back to the halcyon days of of the eighties, nineties, and two thousands 
when this was like a license to print money almost, right? And it minted a lot of billionaires. Sure. So I don't want to make this conversation about that, but I will. I, I will. I will certainly hope that one day I can invite you back and we can thrash out the the thing about trend following because I do think you make some some very important points. I also think that there is some different um, aspects to those points. Um, so so that would be quite interesting. But I'm gonna. But it it leads into a perfect end to our conversation because I'm I'm gonna give you a very difficult task it seems after hearing what you've just said because you are an amazing storyteller as demonstrated with your book as i've heard you uh, speak a few times so my final question is what can we do as trend followers to tell a better story and narrative about trend following look i mean this is comically facile but just better returns I mean, fundamentally, investors, like, they'll come out with, like, fancy stuff like sharp ratios and Sortino ratios and, and all this jazz. All they want is better risk-adjusted returns. They can't eat relative returns. They don't want to explain an underperforming allocation year after year after year to their members or, or investment committee. So, fundamentally, like, we can put all sorts of window dressing on it, but they just want great returns. I mean, even the risk-adjusted let's face it, doesn't really matter. If like there's some trend followers that have a few years making 50% a year, that strategy is going to attract massive money regardless. Uh, I think there is one issue in, and this is a broader secular trend that like on the risk adjusted, that the attractions of private markets is enormous. And also the fact that you can leverage that. So if somebody could find a leveraged, a conservatively leveraged, but you can plausibly promise an investor uh, above beta return in the long run with some, even if it's just accounting slate of hand, like mark to like basically model is in, in private markets, then I think you're onto a winner as well. But in public markets, that's hard to pull off. But I know a lot of investors are allocating everything private because it looks great, makes their sharp ratios look great. Uh, and also because at least it can at least promise the hope that they'll do better than whatever global stocks will do and fixed income over the next 10, 20 years. Uh, and some of that is the leverage. Right? A pension plan can't actually leverage themselves, though some, I think, are probably thinking of doing so. But if they invest in a private equity firm or private debt firm, there is embedded leverage there, right? Um, how you do that in trend following and not get your face ripped off eventually, I don't know, but that might be a way. Well, I think that's perfect layer foundation for our next conversation, Robin. Um, I will say to that, um, and this we'll, we'll have to think about when, when we do that uh, at some point, and that is, of course, the potential return of inflation and how that impacts trend following, because I think that is where the secret might lie. Uh, and of course, also central banks' uh, ability, let's say, to kind of uh, steer the markets to some extent. But let's leave it for that. I think actually this was an excellent note and really a fascinating conversation today, Robin. I'm so grateful for you to uh, share your thoughts uh, on the podcast today and your insights. And it's been, for me, really interesting to learn the story about passive investing and and your book, uh, Trillions, is, is a must-read, first of all. And uh, as you may not know, but once a year, I, I update a guide of the best investment books 
that uh, that I could find. There's 200 in them right now. And in the new edition, your book will definitely be there. And I hope to publish that soon. But I want to give you a chance also to make you some final thoughts uh, to the audience before uh, before we uh, leave the conversation today, where they might uh, you know follow your work, which is uh, very interesting. Yes, well, I mean, thanks for those very kind words. Uh, I'm very flattered by that. I mean, maybe on that note, I should stress that if there's one thing I've learned in financial journalism is that, you know, people a million times smarter than I am do terribly dumb things all the time. And the more I learn about finance, the more I realize how little I actually know. So take everything I say with a massive fistful of salt. Uh, I am just a journalist uh, uttering my vague opinions based on some reporting and all that jazz. Um, but yeah, if you're actually keen to hear more of my v- murmurs around markets, then yeah, I work at the Financial Times and I'm way too active on Twitter at, uh, at Robin Wig. There aren't that many Wigglesworths on Twitter, um, or in Norway, certainly. <laughs> but it was a pleasure to talk to a fellow Scandinavian though, Nils. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a fun twist to our conversation for sure. And to all of you listening today, if you have uh, taken something away from our conversation on your own investment journey, I hope you did. Please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us your comment as to what topics you want us to bring in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From me, Niels Kastelarsen, thanks for listening. I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, Go check out the show notes and the uh, other things, resources we have on the website. And most importantly, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.